Chapter 4. More than a dozen families of transients were already at work in the Orange Grove, as the man from Kansas, with his wife and his three children and his yellow dog, hurried down the line towards the trees which the overseer had assigned to him. They walked in silence, for they had nothing to say to one another and no energy to waste on words. Only half a day, the man was thinking, only four hours till work would be stopped. They'd be lucky if they made as much as 75 cents. 75 cents. 75 cents, and that right front tire wasn't going to last much longer. If they meant to get up to Fresno and then Salinas, they'd just have to get a better one. But even the rottenest old second-hand tire cost money. And money was food. And did they eat? He thought with sudden resentment. If he were alone, if he didn't have to drag the kids and Minnie around, then he could rent a little place somewhere. Near the highway so that he could make a bit of extra money by selling eggs and fruit and things to people that rode past in their automobiles. Sell a lot cheaper than the markets and still make good money. And then, maybe, he'd be able to buy a cow and a couple of hogs. And then he'd find a girl. One of those fat ones. He liked them rather fat. Fat and young, with... His wife started coughing again. The dream was shattered. Did they eat more than they were worth? Three kids with no strength in them. And Minnie going sick on you half the time, so you had to do her work as well as yours. The dog had paused to sniff at a post. With sudden and surprising agility... The man from Kansas took two quick steps forward and kicked the animal squarely in the ribs. You goddamn dog, he shouted. Get out of the way. It ran off, yelping. The man from Kansas turned his head in the hope of catching it in his children's faces an expression of disapproval or commiseration. But the children had learned better than to give him an excuse for going on from the dog to themselves. Under the tousled hair, the three pale, small faces were entirely blank and vacant. Disappointed, the man turned away grumbling indistinctly that he'd belt the hell out of them if they weren't careful. The mother did not even turn her head. She was feeling too sick and tired to do anything but walk straight on. Silence settled down again over the party. Then suddenly, the youngest of the three children let out a shrill cry. Look there, she pointed. In front of them was the castle. From the summit of its highest tower rose a spidery metal structure, carrying a succession of platforms to a height of 20 or 30 feet above the parapet. On the highest of these platforms, black against the shining sky, stood a tiny human figure. As they looked, the figure spread its arms and plunged head foremost out of sight behind the battlements. The children's shrill outcry of astonishment gave the man from Kansas the pretext which, a moment before, they had denied him. He turned to them furiously. Stop that yelling, he yelled, and then rushed at them, hitting out, a slap on the side ahead for each of them. With an enormous effort, the woman lifted herself from the abyss of fatigue into which she had fallen. She halted. She turned. She cried out protestingly. She caught her husband's arm. He, pri he pushed her away so violently that she almost fell. "'You are as bad as the kids,' he shouted at her. "'Just laying around and eating. Not worth a damn, I tell you. I'm just sick and tired of the whole lot of you. Sick and tired,' he repeated. "'So keep your mouth shut, see?' He turned away, and feeling a good deal better for his outburst, walked briskly on, at a rate which he knew his wife would find exhausting, between the rows of loaded orange trees. From that swimming pool at the top of the donjon, the view was prodigious. Floating on the translucent water, one only had to turn one's head to see, between the battlement, successive vistas of plain and mountain, of green and tawny and violet, and faint blue. One floated. One looked and one thought, that is, if one were Jeremy Portage, of the tower in Epicycidian, and that tower with its chambers, looking towards the golden eastern air and level with the living winds. Not so, however, if one were Miss Virginia Mounsipal, Virginia neither floated, nor looked, nor thought of Epicycidian, but took another sip of whiskey and soda, climbed to the highest platform of the diving tower, spread her arms, 
plunged, glided underwater, and, coming up immediately beneath the unsuspecting portage, caught him by the belt of his bathing pants and pulled him under. You asked for it, she said, as he came up again, gasping and spluttering to the surface, lying there without moving, like a silly old Buddha. She smiled at him with an entirely good-natured contempt. These people that Uncle Joe kept bringing to the castle, an Englishman with a monocle to look at the armor, a man with a stammer to clean the pictures, a man who couldn't speak anything but German to look at some silly old pots and plates, and today this other ridiculous Englishman with a face like a rabbit's and a voice like songs without words on the saxophone. And Jeremy Portage blinked the water out of his eyes, and dimly, since he was presbyopic and without his spectacles, saw the young laughing face very close to his own, the body foreshortened and wavering uncertainly through the water. It was not often that he found himself in such proximity to such a being. He swallowed his annoyance and smiled at her. Miss Mounceable stretched out a hand and patted the bald patch at the top of Jeremy's head. Boy, she said, does it shine. Talk of billiard balls. I know what I shall call you. Ivory. Goodbye, Ivory. She turned, swam to the ladder, climbed out, walked to the table on which the bottles and glasses were standing, drank the rest of her whiskey and soda, and then went and sat down on the edge of the couch on which, in black spectacles and bathing drawers, Mr. Stoit was taking his sunbath. Well, Uncle Joe, she said in a tone of affectionate playfulness, feeling kind of good? Feeling fine, baby, he answered. It was true. The sun had melted away his dismal forebodings. He was living again in the present, that delightful present in which one brought happiness to sick children, in which there were tittle bombs prepared for 500 bucks to give one information worth at the very least a million, in which the sky was blue and the sun shined a caressing warmth upon the stomach, in which finally one stirred out of a delicious somnolence to see little Virginia smiling down at one as though she really cared for her old Uncle Joe, and cared for him what was more, not merely as an old uncle, no sir, because when all is said and done, a man is only as old as he feels and acts, and where his baby was concerned, did he feel young? Did he act young? Yes, sir. Mr. Stoit smiled to himself, a smile of triumphant self-satisfaction. Well, baby, he said aloud, and laid a square, thick-fingered hand on the young woman's bare knee. Through half-closed eyelids, Miss Mounceable gave him a secret and somehow indecent look of understanding and complicity, then uttered a little laugh and stretched her arms. Doesn't the sun feel good, she said, and closing her lids completely, she lowered her raised arms, clasped her hands behind her neck, and threw back her shoulders. It was a pose that lifted the breasts, that emphasized the inward curve of the loins and the contrary swell of the buttocks, the sort of pose that a new arrival in the seraglio would be taught by the eunuchs to assume at her first interview with the sultan. The very pose Jeremy recognized, and he had chanced to look her way, of that quite particularly unsuitable statue on the third floor of the Beverly Pantheon. Through his dark glasses, Mr. Stoyt looked up at her with an expression of possessiveness, at once gluttonous and paternal. Virginia was his baby, not only figuratively and colloquially, but also in the literal sense of the word. His sentiments were simultaneously those of the purest father love and the most violent eroticism. He looked up at her. By contrast with the shiny white satin of her breech, clout, and, bre and brassiere, the sunburnt skin seemed more richly brown. The planes of the young body flowed in smooth, continuous curves, effortlessly solid, three-dimensional without accent or abrupt transition. Mr. Stoit's regard traveled up to the auburn hair and came down by way of the rounded forehead of the wide-set eyes and small, straight, impudent nose to the mouth. That mouth, it was her most striking feature. For it was to the mouth's short upper lip that Virginia's face owed its characteristic expression of childlike innocence, an expression that persisted through all her moods, that was noticeable whatever she might be doing, whether it was telling smutty stories or making conversation with the bishop. Taking tea in Pasadena, 
or getting tight with the boys, enjoying what she called a bit of yum-yum, or attending Miss Chronologically, or attending Mass, or attending Mass, ha. <laughs> Chronologically, Miss Mountable was a young woman of 22, but that abbreviated upper lip gave her, in all circumstances, an air of being hardly adolescent, of not having reached the age of consent. For Mr. Stoit, at 60, the curiously perverse contrast between childishness and maturity, between the appearance of innocence and the fact of experience, was intoxicatingly attractive. It was not only so far as he was concerned that Virginia was both kinds of baby, she was also both kinds of baby objectively, in herself. Delicious creature. The hand that had lain inert hitherto upon her knee slowly contracted. Between the broad spatula of the thumb and the strong fingers, what smoothness, what a sumptuous and substantial resilience. Ginny, he said, my baby. The baby opened her large blue eyes and dropped her arms to her sides. The tense back relaxed. The lifted breasts moved downwards and forwards like soft living creatures sinking to repose. She smiled at him. What are you pinching me for, Uncle Joe? I'd like to eat you, her Uncle Joe replied in a tone of cannibalistic sentimentality. I'm tough. Mr. Stoit uttered a maudlin chuckle. Little tough kid, he said. The tough kid stooped down and kissed him. Jeremy Portage, who had been quietly looking at the panorama and continuing his silent recitation of Epipsychidion, happened at this moment to turn once more in the direction of the couch, and was so much embarrassed by what he saw that he began to sink and had to strike out violently with arms and legs to prevent himself from going under. Turning round in the water, he swam to the ladder, climbed out, and, without waiting to dry himself, hurried to the elevator. Really, he said to himself as he looked at the Vermeer, really. I did some business this morning, said Mr. Stoit, when the baby had straightened herself up again. What sort of business? Good business, he answered. Might make a lot of money. Real money, he insisted. How much? Maybe half a million, he said, cautiously understating his hopes. Maybe a million, maybe even more. Uncle Joe, she said, I think you're wonderful. Her voice had the ring of complete sincerity. She genuinely did think him wonderful. In the world in which she had lived, it was axiomatic that a man who could make a million dollars must be wonderful. Parents, friends, teachers, newspapers, radio advertisements, explicitly or by implication, all were unanimous in proclaiming his wonderfulness. And besides, Virginia was very fond of her Uncle Joe. He had given her a wonderful time, and she was grateful. Besides, she liked to like people, if she possibly could. She liked to please them. Pleasing them made her feel good, even when they were elderly like Uncle Joe, and when some of the ways in which she was called upon to please them didn't happen to be very appetizing. I think you're wonderful, she repeated. Her admiration gave him an intense satisfaction. Oh, it's quite easy, he said with hypocritical modesty, angling for more. Virginia gave it to him. Easy nothing, she said firmly. I say you are wonderful, so just keep your mouth shut. Enchanted, Mr. Stoyt took another handful of firm flesh and squeezed it affectionately. I'll give you a present if the deal goes through, he said. What would you like, baby? What would I like, she repeated. But I don't want anything. Her disinterestedness was not assumed, for it was true. She never did want things this way, in cold blood. At the moment a want occurred, for an ice cream soda, for example, for a bit of yum-yum, for a mink coat seen in a shop window, at such moments she did want things, and wanted them badly. Couldn't wait to have them. But as for long-range wants, wants that had to be thought about in advance, no. She never had wanted like that. The best part of Virginia's life was spent in enjoying the successive instance of present contentment of what she was composed. And if ever circumstances forced her out of this mindless eternity into a world of time, it was a narrow little universe in which she found herself, a world whose furthest boundaries were never more than a week or two away in the future. Even as a showgirl at $18 a week, she had found it difficult to bother much about money and security and what would happen if you had an accident and couldn't show your legs anymore. 
Then Uncle Joe would come along and everything was there, as though it grew on trees. A swimming pool tree, a cocktail tree, a chaparelli tree. You just had to reach out your hand and there it was, like an apple in the orchard back home in Oregon. So where did presents come in? Why should she want anything? Besides, it was obvious that Uncle Joe got a tremendous kick out of her not wanting things, and to be able to give Uncle Joe a kick always made her feel good. I tell you, Uncle Joe, I don't want anything. Don't you? said a strange voice, startlingly close behind them. Well, I do. Dark-haired and dapper, glossily levantine, Dr. Sigmund Obispo stepped briskly up to the side of the couch. To be precise, he went on, I want to inject 1.5 cubic centimeters of testosterone into the man's gluteus medius. So off you go, my angel, he said to Virginia in a tone of derision, but with a smile of unabashed desire. Hop! He gave her a familiar little pat on the shoulder, and another when she got up to make room for him on the white satin posterior. Virginia turned around sharply, with the intention of telling him not to be so fresh. Then, as her glance traveled from the, that barrel of hairy flesh, which was Mr. Stoit, <laughs> that barrel of hairy flesh, <laughs> to the other's handsome face, so insultingly sarcastic, and at the same time so flatteringly concupiscent, that she changed her mind, and instead of telling him loudly just where he got off, she made a grimace and stuck out her tongue at him. What was begun as a rebuke had ended, before she knew it, as the acquiescence in an impertinence, as an act of complicity with the offender and of disloyalty to Uncle Joe. Poor Uncle Joe, she thought, with a rush of affectionate pity for the old gentleman. For a moment, she felt quite ashamed of herself. The trouble, of course, was that Dr. Obisbo was so handsome that he made her laugh, that she liked his admiration, that it was fun to lead him on and see how he'd act. She even enjoyed getting mad at him when he was rude, which he constantly was. I suppose you think you're Douglas Fairbanks Jr., she said, making an attempt to be scathing, then walked away with as much dignity as her two little strips of white satin would permit her to assume, and leaning against the battlement, looked down at the plain below. Ant-like figures moved among the orange trees. She wondered idly what they were doing. Then her mind wandered to other, more interesting and personal matters. To Sig and the fact that she couldn't help feeling rather thrilled when he was around, even when he acted the way he had done just now. Someday, maybe, someday, just to see what it was like, and if things got a bit dull or out here at the castle. Poor Uncle Joe, she reflected. But then what could he expect? At his age and at hers. The unexpected thing was that, in all these months, she hadn't yet given him any reason for being jealous. Unless, if, of course, you counted Enid and Mary Lou. What she didn't, because she really wasn't that way, at all. And when it did happen, it was nothing more than a kind of little accident. Nice, but not a bit important. Whereas with Sig, if it ever happened, the thing would be different even though it wasn't very serious, which it wouldn't be, not like with Walt, for example, or even with little Buster back in Portland. It would be different from the accidents with Enid and Mary Lou, because with a man, those things generally did matter a good deal, even when you didn't mean them to matter, which was the only reason for not doing them, outside of their being sins, of course, but somehow that never seemed to count very much when the boy was a real good looker, which one had to admit Sig was, even though it was rather in the style of Adolf Manjou. But, come to think of it, it was those dark ones with oil in their hair that had always given her the biggest kick. And when you'd had a couple of drinks, maybe, and you'd felt you'd like some thrills, why then it never occurred to you that it was a sin, and then one thing led to another, and before you knew what had happened, well, it had happened. And really, she just couldn't believe it was as bad as Father O'Reilly said it was. And anyhow, Our Lady would be a lot more understanding and forgiving than he was. And what about the way Father O'Reilly ate his food whenever he came to dinner? Like a hog. There wasn't any other word for it. And wasn't gluttony just as bad as the other things? So who was he to talk about like that? Well, and how's the patient, Dr. Obisbo inquired in the parody of a bedside manner as he took Virginia's place on the couch? 
He was in the highest of spirits. His work in the laboratory was coming along unexpectedly well. That new preparation of bile salts had done wonder for his liver. The rearmament boom had sent his, the rearmament boom had sent his aircraft shares up another three points, and it was obvious that Virginia wasn't going to hold out much longer. How's the little invalid this morning? He went on, enriching his parody with the character of an English accent, for he had done a year of postgraduate work at Oxford. Mr. Stoick growled inarticulately. There was something about Dr. Obispo's facetiousness that always enraged him. In some not easily definable way, it had the quality of a deliberate insult. Mr. Stoit was always made to feel that Obispo's apparently good-natured banter was in reality the expression of a calculated and malignant contempt. The thought of it made Mr. Stoit's blood boil. But when his blood boiled, his blood pressure he knew went up. His life was shortened. He could not afford to be as angry with Obispo as he would have liked. And what was more, he couldn't afford to get rid of the man. Obispo was an indispensable evil. God is love. There is no death. But Mr. Stoit remembered with terror that he had had a stroke, that he was growing old. Obispo had put him on his feet again when he was almost dying, had promised him ten more years of life, even if those researches didn't work out as well as he had hoped. And if they did work out, then more, much more. Twenty years, thirty, forty. Or it might even be that the loathsome little brute would find some way of proving that Mrs. Eddy was right after all. Perhaps there really and truly couldn't be, wouldn't be any death. Not for Uncle Joe, at any rate. Glorious prospect. Meanwhile, Mr. Stoit sighed, resignedly, profoundly. We all have our cross to bear, he said to himself, echoing across the intervening years the words his grandmother used to repeat when she made him take castor oil. Dr. Obisbo, meanwhile, had sterilized his needle, filled the top off a glass ampoule, filled his syringe. His movements as he worked were characterized by a certain studied exquisiteness, by a florid and self-conscious precision. It was as though the man were simultaneously his own ballet and his own audience, a sophisticated and highly critical audience. It was true. But then, what a ballet. Nijinsky, Karsavina, Pavlova, Massine, all on a single stage. However terrific the applause, it was always merited. Ready, he called at last. Obediently and in silence, like a trained elephant, Mr. Stoit rolled over onto his stomach. Chapter 5 Jeremy had dressed again and was sitting in the subterranean storeroom that was to serve as his study. The dry, acrid dust of old documents had gone to his head, like a kind of intoxicating snuff. His face was flushed as he repaired his files and sharpened his pencils. His bald head shone with perspiration. Behind their bifocal lenses, his eyes were bright with excitement. There, everything was ready. He turned round in his swivel chair and sat for a little while quite still, voluptuously savoring his anticipations. Tied up in innumerable brown paper parcels, the Hoburg papers awaited their first reader. Twenty-seven crates of still, unravished brides of quietness. He smiled to himself at the thought that he was to be their bluebeard. Thousands of brides of quietness accumulated through centuries by successive generations of indefatigable hoberks. Hoberk after hoberk, barony after knighthood, earldom after barony, and then earl of Gonister after earl of Gonister, and down to the last, the eighth. And after the eighth, Nothing but death duties in an old house and two old spinster ladies sinking ever deeper into solitude and eccentricity into poverty and family pride. But finally, poor pets, more deeply into poverty than pride. They had sworn they would never sell, but in the end they had accepted Mr. Stoit's offer. The papers had been shipped to California. They would be able now to buy themselves a couple of really sumptuous funerals. <laughs> and that would be the end of the Hoberks. Delicious fragments of English history. Cautionary, perhaps, 
or perhaps, and more probably, merely senseless, merely a tale told by an idiot, a tale of cutthroats and conspirators, of patrons of learning and shady speculators, of bishops and kings, catamites and minor poets, of admirals and pimps, of saints and heroines and nymphomaniacs, of imbeciles and prime ministers, of art collectors and sadists. And here was all that remained of them, in 27 crates, higgledy-piggledy, never catalogued, never even looked at, utterly virgin. Gloating over his treasure, Jeremy forgot the fatigues of the journey, forgot Los Angeles and the chauffeur, forgot the cemetery and the castle, forgot even Mr. Stoit. He had the Hobart papers, had them all to himself. Like a child dipping by blindly into a bran pie for a present which he knows will be exciting, Jeremy picked up one of the brown paper parcels with which the first crate was filled and cut the string. What rich confusion awaited him within. A book of household accounts for the year 1576 and 1577. A narrative by some Hobart cadet of Sir Kenelm Digby's expedition to Scandaroon. Eleven letters in Spanish from Miguel de Molinos to that lady Hobart who had scandalized her family by turning papist. A collection in early 18th century handwriting of sick room recipes. A copy of Drelincourt's On Death. And an odd volume of André de Nerciat's Felicia, he had just cut the string of the second bundle and was wondering whose was the lock of pale brown hair preserved between the pages of a third earl's holograph, reflections of a late popish plot, when there was a knock at the door. He looked up and saw a small dark man in a white overall advancing towards him. The stranger smiled said, don't let me disturb you, but nevertheless disturbed him. <laughs> My name's Obispo, he went on, Dr. Sigmund Obispo. Physician in ordinary to his majesty King Stoit the first, and let's hope also the last. Evidently delighted by his own joke, he broke into a peal of startlingly loud metallic laughter. Then, with the elegant fastidious gesture of an aristocrat in a dust heap, he picked up one of Molino's letters and, stu and started, slowly and out loud, to decipher the first line of the flowing 17th century calligraphy that met his eyes. Ame a Dios como es ansi no como si lo dice. A forma su imaginación. He looked up at Jeremy with an amused smile. Easier said than done, I should think. Why, you can't even love a woman as she is in herself. And after all, there is some sort of objective physical basis for the phenomenon we call a female. A pretty nice basis in some cases. Her poor old Dios is only a spirit, in other words, pure imagination. And here's this idiot, whoever he is, telling some other idiot that people mustn't love God as he is in their imagination. Once again, self-consciously, the aristocrat, he threw down the letter with a contemptuous flick of the wrist. What drivel it all is, he said. A string of words called religion, another string of words called philosophy, half a dozen other things, half a dozen other strings called political ideals, and all the words either ambiguous or meaningless, and people getting so excited about them they'll murder their neighbors for using a word they don't happen to like, a word that probably doesn't mean as much as a good belch. <laughs> Just a noise without even the excuse of gas on the stomach. Ame a Dios como es ansi, he repeated derisively. It's about as sensible as saying, Hiccup a hiccup como es un hiccup. I don't know how you literae humaniores boys manage to stand it. Don't you pine for some sense once in a while? And Jeremy smiled with an expression of nervous apology. One doesn't bother too much about the meanings, he said, then anticipating further criticism by disparaging himself and the things he loved most dearly. One gets a lot of fun, you know, he went on, just scrabbling about in the dust heaps. Dr. Obisbo laughed and patted Jeremy encouragingly on the shoulder. Good for you, he said. You're frank. I like that. 
Most of the PhD boys one meets are such damned pecksniffs, trying to pull that high moral culture stuff on you. You know, wisdom rather than knowledge, Sophocles instead of science. Funny, I always say to them when they try that on me, funny that the thing you get your income from should happen to be the thing that's going to save humanity. Whereas you don't try to glorify your little racket, you're honest. You admit you're in the thing merely for the fun of it. Well, that's why I'm in my little racket, for the fun. Though, of course, if you give me any of that Sophocles stuff, I just have let you have my piece about science and progress, science and happiness, even science and ultimate truth, if you've been obstinate. He showed his white teeth in a happy derision of everybody. His amusement was infectious. Jeremy also smiled. I'm glad I wasn't obstinate, he said, in a tone whose fluty demureness implied how much he objected to disquisitions on ultimate truth. Mind you, Dr. Abisbo went on, I'm not entirely blind to the charms of your racket. I'd draw the line at Sophocles, of course, and I'd be deadly bored with this sort of stuff. He nodded towards the 27 crates, but I must admit, he concluded handsomely, I've had a lot of fun out of old books in my time, really a lot of fun. Jeremy coughed and caressed his scalp. His eyes twinkled in anticipation of the deliciously dry little jokes he was just about to make. But unfortunately, Dr. Abisbo gave him no time. Serenely unaware of Jeremy's preparations as he, he looked at his watch, then rose to his feet. I'd like to show you my laboratory, he said. There's plenty of time before lunch. Instead of asking if I'd like to see his bloody laboratory, Jeremy protested inwardly as he swallowed his joke, and it had been such a good one. He would have liked, of course, to go on unpacking the Hoburg papers, but lacking the courage to say so, he rose obediently and followed Dr. Obisbo towards the door. Longevity, the doctor explained as they left the room, that was his subject. Had been ever since he left medical school. But of course, so long as he was in practice, he hadn't been able to do any serious work on it. Practice was fatal to serious work, he added parenthetically. How could you do anything sensible when you had to spend all your time looking after patients? Patients belonged to three classes. Those that imagined they were sick but weren't. Those that were sick but would get well anyhow. Those that were sick and would be much better off dead. For anybody capable of serious work to waste his time with patients was simply idiotic. And of course, nothing but economic pressure would ever have driven him to do it. And he might have gone on in that groove forever, wasting himself on morons. But then, quite suddenly, his luck had turned. Joe Stoyt had come to consult him. It had been positively providential. Most awfully a godsend, Jeremy murmured, quoting his favorite phrase of Coleridge. Joe Stoyt, Dr. Obisbo repeated, Joe Stoyt on the verge of breaking up completely. Forty pounds overweight and having had a stroke. Not a bad one, luckily, but enough to put the old bastard into a sweat. Talk of being scared of death. Dr. Obisbo's white teeth flashed again in wolfish good humor. In Joe's case, it had been a panic. Out of that panic had come Dr. Obisbo's liberation from his patients, had come his income, his laboratory for work on the problems of longevity. His excellent assistant had come, too, the financing of that pharmaceutical work at Berkeley, of those experiments with monkeys in Brazil, of that expedition to study the tortoises on the Galapagos Islands. Everything a research worker could ask for, with old Joe himself thrown in as the perfect guinea pig, ready to submit to practically anything short of vivisection without anesthetics, provided it offered some hope of keeping abo above ground a few years longer. Not that he was doing anything spectacular with the old buzzard at the moment, just keeping his weight down and taking care of his kidneys and pepping him up with periodical shots of synthetic sex hormone and watching out for those arteries. The ordinary common-sense treatment for a man of Joe Stoyt's age and medical history. Meanwhile, however, he was on the track of something new, something that promised to be important. In a few months, perhaps in a few weeks, he'd be in a position to make a definite pronouncement. 
That's very interesting, said Jeremy with hypocritical politeness. They were walking along a narrow corridor, whitewashed and bleakly illuminated by a series of electric bulbs. Through open doors, Jeremy had occasional glimpses of vast cellars crammed with totem poles and armor, with stuffed orangutans and marble groups by Thorwaldson, with gilded bodhisattvas and early steam engines, with lingams and stagecoaches and Peruvian pottery, with crucifixes and mineralogical specimens. Dr. Obisbo, meanwhile, had begun to talk again about longevity. The subject, he insisted, was still in the pre-scientific stage. A lot of observations without any explanatory hypothesis. A mere chaos of facts. And what, and what odd, what essentially eccentric facts. What was it, for example, that made a cicada live as long as a bull? Or a canary outlast three generations of sheep? Why should dogs be senile at 14 and parrots sprightly at 100? Why should female humans become sterile in the 40s while female crocodiles continue to lay eggs into their third century? Why in heaven's name should a pike live to 200 without showing any signs of senility, whereas poor old Joe Stoit? From a side passage, two men suddenly emerged, carrying between them on a stretcher a couple of mummified nuns. There was a collision. Damned fools, Dr. Obispo shouted angrily. Damned fool yourself. Can't you look where you're going? Keep your face shut. Dr. Obispo turned contemptuously away and walked on. Who the hell do you think you are, they called after him. Jeremy, meanwhile, had been looking with lively curiosity at the mummies. Discalced Carmelites, he said to nobody in particular, and enjoying the flavor of that curious combination of syllables, he repeated them with a certain emphatic relish. Discalced Carmelites. Discalce your ass, said the foremost of the two men, turning fiercely upon this new antagonist. Jeremy gave one glance at that reddened and angry face, then, with ignominious haste, hurried after his guide. Dr. Obisbo halted at last. Here we are, he said, opening a door. A smell of mice and absolute alcohol floated out in the corridor. Come on in, he said cordially. Jeremy entered. There were the mice, all right, cage upon cage of them, in tiers along the wall directly in front of him. To the left, three windows, hewn in the rock, gave on to the tennis court and a distant, a distant panorama of orange trees and mountains. Seated at a table in front of one of those windows, a man was looking through a microscope. He raised his fair, tousled head as they approached and turned towards them a face of almost childlike candor and openness. Hello, Doc, he said with a charming smile. My assistant, Dr. Obispo explained, Peter Boone. Peter, this is Mr. Portage. Pete rose and revealed himself an athletic young giant. Call me Pete, he said when Jeremy had called him Mr. Boone. Everyone calls me Pete. Jeremy wondered whether he ought to invite the young man to call him Jeremy, but wondered as usual so long that the appropriate moment for doing so passed irrevocably. Yeah, but wondered, as usual, so long that the appropriate moment for doing so passed irrevocably. Pete's a bright boy, Dr. Obispo began again in a tone that was affectionate in, in, in intention, but a little patronizing, in fact. Knows his physiology. Good with his hands, too. Best mouse surgeon I ever saw. He patted the young man on the shoulder. Pete smiled, a little uncomfortably, it seemed to Jeremy, as though he found it rather difficult to make the right response to the other's cordiality. Takes his politics a bit too seriously, Dr. Obisbo went on. That's his only defect. I'm trying to cure him of that. Not very successfully so far, I'm afraid, eh, Pete? The young man smiled again, more confidently. This time, he knew exactly where he stood and what to do. Not very successfully, he echoed. And then turning to Jeremy. Did you see the Spanish news this morning, he asked. The expression on his large, fair, open face changed to one of concern. Jeremy shook his head. It's something awful, said Pete gloomily. When I think of those poor devils without planes or artillery or... 
Well, don't think of them, Dr. Obisbo cheerfully advised. You'll feel better. The young man looked at him, then looked away again without saying anything. After a moment of silence, he pulled out his watch. I think I'll go and have a swim before lunch, he said, and walked towards the door. Dr. Obisbo picked up a cage of mice and held it within a few inches of Jeremy's nose. These are the sex hormone boys, he said, with a jocularity that the other found curiously offensive. The animal squeaked as he shook the cage. Lively enough will the effect last. The trouble is that the effects are only temporary. Not that temporary effects were to be despised, he added as he replaced the cage. It was always better to feel temporarily good than temporarily bad. That was why he was giving old Joe a course of that testosterone stuff. Not that the old bastard had any great need of it with that nonsensical girl around. Dr. Opisbo suddenly put his hand over his mouth and looked round towards the window. Thank God, he said, he's out of the room. Poor old Pete. A derisive smile appeared in his face. Is he in love? He tapped his forehead. I think she's like something in the works of Tennyson. You know, chemically pure. Last month he nearly killed a man for suggesting that she and the old boy... Well, you know. God knows what he figures the girl is doing here. Telling Uncle Joe about the spiral nebulae, I suppose. <laughs> well, if it makes him happy to think that way, I'm not the one that's going to spoil his fun. Dr. Obisbo laughed indulgently. But to come back to what I was saying about Uncle Joe... Just having that girl around the house was the equivalent of a hormone treatment. But it wouldn't last. It never did. Brown, Sequard, and Voronoff, and all the rest of them, they'd been on the wrong track. They thought that the decay of sexual power was the cause of senility. Whereas it was only one of the symptoms. Senescence started somewhere else and involved the sex mechanism along with the rest of the body. Hormone treatments were just palliatives and pick-me-ups. Helped you for a time, but didn't prevent your growing old. Jeremy stifled a yawn. For example, Dr. Abisbo went on, why should some animals live much longer than human beings and yet show no signs of old age? Somehow, somewhere we had made a biological mistake. Crocodiles had avoided that mistake, and so had tortoises. The same was true of certain species of fish. Look at this, he said, and crossing the room he drew back a rubber curtain, revealing as he did so the glass front of a large aquarium recessed into the wall. Jeremy approached and looked in. In the green and shadowy translucence, two huge fish hung suspended, their snouts almost touching motionless except for the occasional ripple of a fin and the rhythmic panting, panting of their gills. A few inches from their staring eyes, a rosary of bubbles streamed ceaselessly up towards the, towards the light, and all around them the water was spasmodically silver, silver with the dartings of smaller fish. Sunk in their mindless ecstasy, the monsters paid no attention. Carp, Dr. Obispo explained. Carp from the fish ponds of a castle in Franconia. He had forgotten the name, but it was some near, somewhere near Bamberg. The family was impoverished, but the fish were heirlooms, unpurchasable. Joe Stoyd had to spend a lot of money to have these two stolen and smuggled out of the country in a specially constructed automobile with a tank under the back seats. Sixty pounders they were, over four feet long, and those rings in their tails were dated 1761. The beginning of my period, Jeremy murmured in a sudden access of interest. 1761 was the year of Fingal. He smiled to himself. The juxtaposition of carp and ossian. Carp and Napoleon's favorite poet, Carp and the first premonitions of the Celtic twilight, gave him pe a peculiar pleasure. What a delightful subject for one of his little essays. Twenty pages of erudition and absurdity, of sacrilege and lavender, of a scholar's delicately canai irreverence for the illustrious or unillustrious dead. But Dr. Obisbo would not allow him to think his thoughts in peace. Indefatigably writing his own hobby, he began again. There they were, he said, pointing at the huge fish. Nearly 200 years old, perfectly healthy, no symptoms of senility, 
no apparent reason why they shouldn't go on for another three or four centuries. And there they were, and here were you. He turned back accusingly towards Jeremy. Here were you, no more than middle-aged, but already bald, already long-sighted and short-winded, already more or less edentat. Huh. Edentat. Edentate? E-D-E-N-T-A-T-E. Huh. Incapable of prolonged physical exertion. Chronically constipated. Could you deny it? Your memory already not so good as it was. Your digestion capricious. Your potency falling off, if it hadn't indeed already disappeared for good. Jeremy forced himself to smile, and, at every fresh item, nodded his head in what was meant to look like an amused assent. Inwardly, he was writhing with a mixture of distress at this all-too-truthful diagnosis, and anger against the diagnostician for the ruthlessness of his scientific detachment. Talking with a humorous self-deprecation about one's own advancing senility was very different from being bluntly told about it by someone who took no interest in you except as an animal that happened to be unlike a fish. <laughs> Nevertheless, he continued to nod and smile. Here you were, Dr. Opisbo repeated at the end of his diagnosis, and there were the carp. How was it that you didn't manage your physiological affairs as well as they did? Just where and how and why did you make the mistake that had already robbed you of your teeth and hair and would bring you in a very few years to the grave? Old Menchnikov had asked those questions and made a bold attempt to answer. Everything he said happened to be wrong. Phagocytosis didn't occur. Intestinal autointoxication wasn't the sole cause of senility. Neuronophages were mythological monsters. Drinking sour milk didn't materially prolong life, whereas the removal of a large gut did materially shorten it. Chuckling, he recalled those operations that were so fashionable just before the war. Old ladies and gentlemen with their colons cut out, and in consequence being forced to evacuate every few minutes like canaries. Jesus. All to no purpose, needless to say, because of course the operation that was meant to make them live to a hundred killed them all off within a year or two. Dr. Obisbo threw back his glossy head and uttered one of these peals of brazen laughter which were his regular response to any tale of human stupidity resulting in misfortune. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> Poor old Menchnikov, he went on, wiping the tears of merriment from his eyes. Consistently wrong. And yet almost certainly not nearly so wrong as people had thought. Wrong, yes, in supposing that was all a matter of intestinal stasis and auto-intoxication. But probably right in thinking that the secret was somewhere down in there, in the gut. Somewhere in the gut, Dr. Obisbo repeated, and what was more, he believed that he was on its track. He paused and stood for a moment in silence, drumming with his fingers on the glass in the aquarium. Poised between mud and air, the two obese and aged carps hung in their greenish twilight, serenely unaware of him. Dr. Obisbo shook his head at them. The worst experimental animals in the world, he said in a tone of resentment mingled with a certain gloomy pride. Nobody had a right to talk about technical difficulty when they hadn't tried to work with fish. Take the simplest operation. It was a nightmare. Have you ever tried to keep its gills properly wet while it was anesthetized on the operating table? Or alternatively, to do your surgery underwater? Had you ever set out to determine a fish's basal metabolism, or take an electrocardiograph of its heart action, or measure its blood pressure? Had you ever wanted to analyze it, its excreta? And if so, did you know how hard it was to even collect them? Had you ever attempted to study the chemistry of a fish's digestion and assimilation, to determine its blood picture under different conditions, to measure the speed of its nervous reactions? No, you had not, said Dr. Obisbo contemptuously, and until you had, you had no right to complain about anything. <laughs> what a cunt. All right. He drew the curtain on his fish, took Jeremy by the arm, and led him back to the mice. Look at those, he said, pointing to a batch of cages on an upper shelf. Jeremy looked. 
the mice in question were exactly like all other mice. What's wrong with them, he asked. Dr. Obisbo laughed. If those animals were human beings, he said dramatically, they'd all be over a hundred years old. And he began to talk very rapidly and excitedly about fatty alcohols and the intestinal flora of carp. For the secret was there, the key to the whole problem of senility and longevity. There, between the sterols and the particular flora of the carp's intestine. Those sterols, Dr. Obisbo frowned and shook his head over them, always linked up with senility. The most obvious case, of course, was cholesterol. A senile animal might be defined as one with an accumulation of cholesterol in the walls of its arteries. Potassium thiocyanate seemed to dissolve those accumulations. Senile rabbits would show signs of rejuvenation under a treatment with potassium thiocyanate. So would senile humans, but again, not for very long. Cholesterol in the arteries is evidently only one of the troubles. But then cholesterol was only one of the sterols. They were a closely related group, these fatty alcohols. It didn't take much to transform one into another. But if you read old Schneglock's work and the stuff they'd been publishing at Uppsala, you'd know that some of the sterols were definitely poisonous, much more than cholesterol, even in large accumulations. Longbotham had even suggested a connection between fatty alcohols and neoplasms. In other words, cancer might be regarded in a final analysis as a symptom of sterile poisoning. He himself would go even further and say such sterile poisoning was responsible for the entire degenerative process of senescence in man and the other mammals. What nobody had done hitherto was to look into the part played by fatty alcohols in the life of such animals as carp. That was the work he had been doing for the last year. His researchers had convinced him of three things. First, that the fatty alcohols in carp did not accumulate in excessive quantity. Second, that they did not undergo transformation to the more poisonous sterols. And third, that both of these immunities were due to the peculiar nature of the carp's intestinal flora. What a flora, Dr. Obispo cried enthusiastically. So rich, so wonderfully varied. He had not yet succeeded in isolating the organism responsible for the carp's immunity to old age, nor did he fully understand the nature of the chemical mechanisms involved. Nevertheless, the main fact was certain. In one way or another, in combination or in isolation, these organisms contrived to keep the fish's sterols from turning into poisons. That was why a carp could live a couple hundred years and show no signs of senility. Could the intestinal flora of a carp be transferred to the gut of a mammal? And if transferable, would it achieve the same chemical and biological results? That was what he had been trying for the past few months to discover, with no success to begin with. Recently, however, they had experimented with a new technique, a technique that protected the flora from the processes of digestion, gave it time to adapt itself to the unfamiliar conditions. It had taken root. The effect on the mice had been immediate and significant. Senescence had been halted, even reversed. Physiologically, the animals were younger than they had been for at least 18 months, younger at the equivalent of 100 than they had been at the equivalent of 60. Outside in the corridor, an electric bell began to ring. It was lunchtime. The two men left the room and walked towards the elevator. Dr. Obisbo went on talking. Mice, he said, were apt to be a bit deceptive. He had now begun to try the things out on larger animals. If it worked all right on dogs and baboons, it ought to work on Uncle Joe. Chapter 6 In the small dining room, most of the furnishings came from the pavilion at Brighton. Four gilded dragons supported the red lacquer table, and two more served as caryatids on either side of a chimney piece in the same material. It was the Regency's dream of the gorgeous East. The kind of thing, Jeremy reflected as he sat down in his scarlet and gold chair, the kind of thing that the word Cathay would have conjured up in Keats' mind, for example, or Shelley's, or Lord Byron's. 
just as that charming letter by Eddie over there next to the Fra Angelico Annunciation was an accurate embodiment of their fancies on the subject of pagan mythology, was an authentic illustration, he chuckled inwardly at the thought, to the Odes to the Psyche and the Grecian urn, to Endymion and Prometheus Unbound. In ages, habits of thought and feeling and imagination are shared by all who live and work within that age, by all from the journeyman up to the genius. Regency is always regency, whether you take your sample from the top of the basket or from the bottom. In 1820, the man who shut his eyes and tried to visualize magic casements opening on the foam of fairy seas would see what? The turrets of Brighton Pavilion. At the thought, Jeremy smiled to himself with pleasure. Eddie and Keats, Brighton and Percy Bysshe Shelley. What a delightful subject. Much better than carp and ossian better inasmuch as Nash and the Prince Regent were funnier than even the most aged fish. But for conversational purposes and at the luncheon table, even the best of subjects is worthless if there is nobody to discuss it with. And who was there, Jeremy asked himself, who was there in this room desirous or capable of talking with him on such a theme? Not Mr. Stoit, not certainly Miss Mounceable, nor the two young women who had come over from Hollywood to have lunch with her, not Dr. Obisbo, who cared more for mice than books, nor Peter Boone, who probably didn't even know that there were any books to care for. The only person who might conceivably be expected to take an interest in the manifestations of the later Georgian time spirit was the individual who had been introduced to him as Dr. Herbert Mulge, Ph.D., D.D., principal of Tarzana College. But at the moment, Dr. Mulge was talking in a rich vein of something that sounded almost like pulpit, elo like pulpit eloquence about the new auditorium which, Dr. Stoit, which Mr. Stoit had just presented to the college, and which was shortly to be given its formal opening. Dr. Mulge was a large and handsome man with a voice to match, a voice at once sonorous and suave, unctuous and ringing. The flow of his language was slow, but steady, and apparently stanchless. In phrases full of the audible equivalents of capital letters, <laughs> he now went on to assure Mr. Stoit and anyone else who cared to listen that it would be a real inspiration for the boys and girls of Tarzana to come together in the beautiful new building for their community activities, for non-denominational worship, for example, for the enjoyment of the best in drama and music. Yes, what an inspiration. The name of Stoit would be remembered with love and reverence by successive generation of the college's alumni and alumnae, would be remembered, he might say, forever. For the auditorium was a momentum air perennius, a footprint on the sand of time, definitely a footprint. And now, Dr. Mulch continued, between mouthfuls of cream chicken, now Tarzana's crying need was for a new art school. Because, after all, art, as we were now discovering, was one of the most potent of educational forces. Art was the aspect under which, in this 20th century of ours, the religious spirit most clearly manifested itself. Art was the means by which personalities could best achieve creative self-expression. And, cripes, Jeremy said to himself, and then, golly. He smiled ruefully at the thought that he had hoped to talk to this imbecile about the relation between Keats and Brighton Pavilion. <laughs> Peter Boone found himself separated from Virginia by the blonder of her two young friends from Hollywood, so that he could only look at her past a forehead of rouge and eyelashes, of golden curls, and a thick, almost visible perfume of gardenias. To anyone else, this foreground might have seemed, might have seemed a bit distracting. But for Pete, it was of no more significance than the equivalent of mud. He was interested only in what was beyond the foreground, in that exquisitely abbreviated upper lip, in that little nose that made you want to cry when you looked at it. It was so elegant and impertinent, so ridiculous and angelic, in that long Florentine bob of lustrous auburn hair, 
and those wide-set, widely-opened eyes with their twinkling surface of humor and their dark blue depths of what he was sure was an infinite tenderness, a plumless feminine wisdom. He loved her so much that, where his heart should have been, he could only feel an aching breathlessness, a cavity which she alone could fill. Meanwhile, she was talking to the blonde foreground about that new job which the foreground had landed with Cosmopolis Pearl Metal Studios. The picture was called Say It With Stockings. <laughs> the picture was called Say It With Stockings. And the foreground was to play the part of a rich debutante who runs away from home to make a career of her own, becomes a striptease dancer in a western mining camp, and finally marries a cowpuncher who turns out to be the son of a millionaire. <laughs> Sounds like a swell story, said Virginia. Don't you think so, Pete? Pete thought so. He was ready to think almost anything if she wanted him to. That reminds me of Spain, Virginia announced. And while Jeremy, who had been eavesdropping on the conversation, frantically tried to imagine what train of associations had taken her from, say it was stockings, to the Civil War, whether it had been Cosmopolis Perlmutter, anti-Semitism, Nazis, Franco, or a debutante, class war, Moscow, Negrin, or striptease, modernity, radicalism, Republicans. While he was vainly speculating thus, Virginia went on to ask the young man to tell them about what he had done in Spain, and when he demurred, insisted, because it was so thrilling, because the foreground had never heard about it, because finally she wanted him to. Pete obeyed, only half articulately, in a vocabulary composed of slang and cliches, and adorned by expletives and grunts. The vocabulary Jeremy reflected as he listened surreptitiously through the booming of Dr. Mulge's eloquence. The characteristically squalid and poverty-stricken vocabulary to which the fear of being thought unsocially different or undemocratically superior or unsportingly highbrow condemns most young Englishmen and Americans. He began to describe his experiences as a volunteer in the International Brigade during the heroic days of 1937. It was a touching narrative. Through, through the hopelessly inadequate language, Jeremy could divine the young man's enthusiasm for liberty and justice, his courage, his love for his comrades, his nostalgia, even in the neighborhood of that short upper lip, even in the midst of an absorbing piece of scientific research, for the life of men united in devotion to a cause, made one in the face of hardship and shared danger and impending death. Gee, he kept repeating, they were swell guys. <laughs> they were all swell. Nud, who had saved his life one day up there in Aragon, Anton and Chuck and poor little Dino, who had been killed, Andre, who had lost a leg, Jan, who had a wife and two children, Fritz, who'd had six months in a Nazi concentration camp, and all the others, the finest bunch of boys in the world. And what did he do but go and get rheumatic fever on them? And then myo myocarditis, which meant no more active service, no more anything except sitting around. That was why he was here, he explained apologetically. But gee, it had been good while it lasted. That time, for example, when he and Nud had gone out at night and climbed a precipice in the dark, and taken a whole platoon of Moors by surprise and killed half a dozen of them and come back with a machine gun and three prisoners. And what is your opinion of creative work, Mr. Portage? Surprised and flagrant inattention, Jeremy started gustily. Oh, started guiltily. Creative work, he mumbled, trying to gain a little time. Creative work? Well, of course, one's all for it. <laughs> Definitely, he insisted. I'm glad to hear you say so, said Dr. Mulge, because that's what I want at Tarzana. Creative work. Ever more and more creative. Shall I tell you what is my highest ambition? Neither Mr. Stoit nor Jeremy made any reply. 
But Dr. Moles proceeded, nevertheless, to tell them. It is to make of Tarzana the living center of the new civilization that is coming to blossom here in the West. He raised a large fleshy hand in solemn asseveration. Asseveration? Huh. The Athens of the 20th century is on the point of emerging here, in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. I want Tarzana to be its Parthenon and its Academe, its Stoa and its Temple of the Muses. Religion, art, philosophy, science. I want them all to find their home in Tarzana, to radiate their influence from our campus to... In the middle of his story about the moors and the precipice, Pete became aware that only the foreground was listening to him. Virginia's attention had wandered, surreptitiously at first, then, frankly and avowedly, had wandered to where on her left. The less blonde of her two friends was having something almost whispered to her by Dr. Obisbo. What's that? Virginia asked. Dr. Obisbo leaned towards her and began again. The three heads, the oil-smooth black, the elaborately curly brown, the lustrous auburn, were almost touching. By the expression on their faces, Pete could see that the doctor was telling one of his dirty stories. Alleviated for a moment by the smile she had given him when she asked him to tell them about Spain, the anguish in that panting void where his heart ought to have been came back with redoubled intensity. It was a complicated pain, made up of jealousy and a despairing sense of loss and personal unworthiness, of a fear that his angel was being corrupted and another, deeper fear which his conscious mind refused to formulate, a fear that there wasn't much further corruption to be done, that the angel was not as angelic as his love had made him assume. The flow of his narrative suddenly dried up. He was silent. Well, what happened then? The foreground inquired with an eagerness and an expression of hero-worshipping admiration that any other young man would have found delightfully flattering. He shook his head. Oh, nothing much. But the Moors... Hell, he said impatiently. What does it matter, anyhow? His words were drowned by a violent explosion of laughter that sent the three conspiratorial heads, the black, the brown, the lovely Auburn, flying apart from one another. He looked up at Virginia and saw a face distorted with mirth. At what, he asked himself in agony, trying to measure the extent of her corruption, and a kind of telescoped and synthetic memory of all the schoolboy stories, all the jokes and limericks he had ever heard rushed in upon him. Was it at that one that she was laughing, or at that? Oh, God, or perhaps at that. He hoped and prayed it wasn't at that. And the more he hoped and prayed, the more insanely sure he became that that was the one it had been. Above all, Dr. Moles was saying, creative works in the arts. Hence the crying need for a new art school, an art school worthy of Tarzana, worthy of the highest traditions of... The girl's shrill laughter exploded with a force of hilarity proportionate to the strength of the surrounding social taboos. Mr. Stoit turned sharply in the direction from which the noise had come. What's the joke, he asked suspiciously. He wasn't going to have his baby listen to smut. He disapproved of smut in mixed company almost as wholeheartedly as his grandmother, the Plymouth sister, had done. What's all that noise about? It was Dr. Obisbo who answered. He'd been telling them a funny story he'd heard over the radio, he explained with that suave politeness that was like a sarcasm. Something delightfully amusing. Perhaps Mr. Stoit would like to have him repeat it. Mr. Stoit grunted ferociously and turned away. A glance at his host's scowling face convinced Dr. Mould that it would be better to postpone discussion of the art school to another, more propitious occasion. It was disappointing, for it seemed to him that he had been making good progress. But there, such things would happen. Dr. Mulch was a college president chronically in, the, in quest of endowments. He knew all about the rich, knew, for example, that they were like gorillas, creatures not easily domesticated, deeply suspicious, alternately bored and bad-tempered. You had to approach them with caution, to handle them gently and with a boundless cunning. And even then, they might suddenly turn savage on you and show their teeth. 
Half a lifetime of experience with bankers and steel magnets and retired meat packers had taught Dr. Moles to take such little setbacks as today's with a truly philosophic patience. Brightly, with a smile on his large imperial Roman face, he turned to Jeremy. And what do you think of our California weather, Mr. Portage? he asked. Meanwhile, Virginia had noticed the expression on Pete's face and immediately divined the causes of his misery. Poor Pete. But really, if you thought she had nothing better to do than always be listening to his talk about that silly old war in Spain, or if it wasn't Spain, it was the laboratory, and they did vivisection there, which was just awful. Because after all, when you were hunting, the animals had a chance of getting away, particularly if you were a bad shot like she was. Besides, hunting was full of thrills, and you got such a kick from being up there in the mountains in the good air, whereas Peter cut them up underground in that cellar place. No, if she thought she had nothing better to do than that, he had made a big mistake. All the same, he was a nice boy, and talking about being in love. It was nice having people around who felt that way about you. Made you feel kind of good. Though it could be rather a nuisance sometimes. Because they got to feel that they had some claim on you. They figured they had a right to tell you things and interfere. Pete didn't do that in so many words, but he had a way of looking at you, like a dog would do if it suddenly started criticizing you for taking another cocktail. Saying it with eyes like Hetty Lamar. Only it wasn't the same thing as Hetty was saying with her eyes. In fact, just the opposite. It was just the opposite now. And what had she done? Got bored with that silly old war and listened into what Sig was saying to Mary Lou. Well, all she could say was that she wasn't going to have anyone interfering with the way she chose to live her own life. That was her business. Why, he was almost as bad, the way he looked at her, as Uncle Joe, or her mother, her father O'Reilly. Only, of course, they didn't just look, they said things. Not that he meant badly, of course, poor Pete. He was just a kid. Just unsophisticated, and on top of everything, in love the way a kid is, like the high school boy in Deanna Durbin's last picture. Poor Pete, she thought again. It was tough luck on him, but the fact was she never had been attracted by that big, fair, Cary Grant, Cary Grant sort of boy. They just didn't appeal to her. That was all there was to it. She liked him, and she enjoyed his being in love with her, but that was all. Across the corner of the, di of the table, she caught his eye, gave him a dazzling smile, and invited him, if he had half an hour to spare after lunch, to come and teach her and the girls how to pitch horseshoes.